Rogers Arena ahead of tomorrow's game against the Pittsburgh Penguins. It is the Canucks Hour on your home with the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host, of course, is Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who does fantastic work covering the team at The Athletic as well. We are back. The team is back at Rogers Arena, just getting practice officially underway as we speak. And we are back live from Rogers Arena. We'll bring you any of the interesting updates, lineup notes, tidbits from Canucks practice as they develop here on the Canucks Hour. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, avenuemachinery.ca. And, of course, the Dunbar Lumber text line is 650-650. We always welcome your comments. If you've got thoughts, questions, opinions, whatever it is you want to share with us about the Vancouver Canucks or really anything on a Friday, hit us up, 650-650. We will do our best to answer as many of them as we can throughout the course of the show. So this is the second of a couple of days off in a row for the Vancouver Canucks. And of course they finished up that five game road trip that started in just disastrous fashion in Pittsburgh with a string of decent efforts, ending up in a couple of wins against very poor competition in Montreal and Ottawa. And now Drancer, they are back at Rogers arena, another lengthy homestand, six games this time, starting with the Pittsburgh Penguins tomorrow night, Saturday night hockey at Rogers Arena, and I guess the big question for me is, you know, we, we've been breaking this season into chunks. Okay, what what do they need to do on this road stand or this road trip on this home stand? What is what are the stakes of this home stand? Are there stakes to this home stand? <laughs> that, that's really what, the question. What right? do they need to do on this home stand? Act of God. Yeah, they need an act of God at this point. But they, really, we got to stop. We got to stop even looking at it until like they don't even. You have to earn your way back into the playoff conversation, and that's going to take something like eight of nine. Eight wins of nine. Like, that's going to take something. And, and by the way, it's going to need something to happen fast. Yeah. They got a lot of home games. They play a lot of good teams. You know, we, we got we to gotta shelve the playoff conversation until they win, like, eight of nine because it'll take that to get them back to, like, a one-third shot. Yeah. Even they're, they're one in 100 right now. They're even, one in 100 as long as it gets, as long with, as the odds get. Even with eight or nine, you're you're on the fringes of the playoff talk. You're, not, you're, you're <laughs> yeah. not back in the meat of it or anything like that. So there's not – we can't really talk about the stakes from that perspective, but are there stakes from an organizational perspective, right? That's that's really my question. Like, are we, are we in yet another moment where, you know, oh, hey, a, a good result on this homestand, it could – it could help people survive a little bit longer on the job, or are we even past that? I guess my question really, Drancer, is does any of this even matter? Does any of this matter, what we're getting set to talk about I mean, about I here? say yes. I say there's some things that matter. Like, I look at practice. So here's some here's some notes from practice as it gets going. They've started their first drill. They did quick initial line rushes. Here's some takes from practice. First of all, Garland remains with Horvat and Pearson. They had a great game against Ottawa. Yep. There are some really important decisions facing the organization with all three players over the next few years. We don't know which management group who will be directly responsible as those decisions get made, but Horvat has two years remaining on his contract. Pearson has three, but at some point does the club need to carve out additional flexibility considering what Pearson is bringing? That's a big picture question, and his performance to some extent will dictate that. Does he remain at a top six level? Or a credible enough top six level, is he part of the solution on the PK? There's a ton of questions there. Garland, 
He's Garland would be one of the most highly sought after assets on this yeah. team. You know, is he par- a core piece or not a core piece? That's still going to matter over the balance. On the second line, the Canucks have Pod Colson moving up to play with Miller and Besser. That that group, that line, had a couple of shifts, both in Montreal and Ottawa, and it did look good. Is Pod Colson a top six caliber forward on an entry-level deal for the next three years? Because that would be a massive development for this team. Besser, we know the stakes for Besser over the balance of the season, especially with how he's performed. And Miller would be the most valuable single asset on this team. There's some key decisions to make there. Pedersen's still on the third line with, with Justin Dowling and Niels Hoaglander. Hoaglander's going to be a, need a second contract in a year. Pedersen, can he get his game going? That's what matters at this point. It's not about making the playoffs. It's about seeing some of the internal development and how that shapes what this club needs to do to get back on track. Fourth line, we've got Dickinson, we've got Mott, an expiring deal. Mott could fetch a ton at the deadline if that's how they decide to do this. Dickinson needs to figure out his game, right? Or they need to figure out what Dickinson is for this team, especially considering the commitment they've made. And then here's here's the big one for me. Travis Hamannick back with the Canucks at practice. He's got another year left, $3 million beyond this season. He's playing currently on the fourth pair. Now, he's probably working his way back, and I'm sure the Canucks like how their defense has played over the past four games since they sort of came up with these new pairs. So, not a huge shock, but, you know, what does Travis Hamnick's future hold, especially considering he signed a $6 million deal with the team? He's only played three games, right? There's a ton to work through in terms of what his value might be on the trade market or what the club can do with him, who he plays with. Luke Shen, still with Quinn Hughes. He's been a great surprise for the Canucks. Um, you know, is that <laughs> how how much does the fact that Shen has outperformed all the other guys they signed on the right side this summer, right? Uh, like Pullman they spent 5.5 and Hamannick. on yep. Pullman and Hamannick, and the best yep. option with Hughes right now is the eight eight hundred and fifty K guy. Like ridiculous, but that also poses some really difficult questions about Pullman's future and Hamannick's future and how the club navigates that. Uh, those are sort of the big questions. I'd also add. In terms of practice takeaways, Oliver ekman Larson absent. Uh, I'm guessing maintenance. I'm guessing whether it's maintenance or not will be told it's maintenance. Yes, yes. But I actually think this is a maintenance day, and here's why. The Canucks have Brad Hunt on a second pair with Tyler Myers. I think in the event that something was legitimately up with Oliver ekman Larson, you'd have seen the Canucks do something that we'd believe they'd actually try in game that would have right? a more likely a, a likely reality of seeing it against yeah. Pittsburgh tomorrow. And and, yeah. and by the way. One other thing I want to note: reports indicate that Kale Clegg, twenty-three-year-old, six-foot-four, Los Angeles Kings lefty defenseman, is going to hit waivers today. The Canucks have really good waiver priority in this league right now. Opportunity you cannot miss. I know there's a ton of doubt about autonomy and who's you know at the at the wheel and what this organization is going to do. There'd also be some navigating to do in terms of figuring out roster space but that is the type of claim you have to make when you're a team that just needs value needs to have some bets needs to have some interesting bodies on the blue line kale clegg no-brainer claim for this organization well and just based on you know how you ran down the lineup here (laughs) at practice today drans and the questions surrounding a lot of the key players and the theme of those questions is you know what the what the remainder of this season is going to be about. It's not going to be about watching the standings. It's not going to be about you know tracking how far out they are of a playoff spot because as you said, they're the longest of long odds right now, and we know that. So that's not what it's about. But it is still about figuring out where they have long term solutions in place and where they don't, and which players 
they might want to move on from, which players they know they want to keep here. And part of that is using this opportunity of the season to to gather information about not just guys who are in your roster and in your organization right now, but as you pointed out, somebody like Kale Clegg, who, as you say, is expected to hit the waiver wire today. If you have and a he chance, has and he and now officially has gone on waivers today from the LA Kings, you know, for a team like the Canucks, who don't figure into the playoff race for the rest of the season and are desperate for young talent on the blue line, young talent with upside in particular on the blue line, it's hard to see how he doesn't make sense. And again, that's one of, you know, this season is a lost season in many ways, but you can still make it productive, right? If you pick up a player like Kale Clegg and use the balance of the season to figure out if he's a long-term solution for you. It's the kind of very low risk, potentially at least medium upside, potentially high upside move that I do think makes a lot of sense for the team. Now, the bigger question is, are they in a position to be making moves like that? Well, and, right? But if they're not, if they're not, then that's exactly why change needed to come 100%. already, right? Like if you are not at the point where you're trusting the evaluations you're making in terms of this is what this player is, this is what this player's value is, this player is part of our next core, this player should be monetized before the deadline, we can maximize value off this guy if we retain and move him so that a team that acquires him gets multiple playoff runs with him. You know, Tyler Mott, we love him. You know, he, he we need to monetize him and, and maybe bank a pitch at resigning him in the offseason. You know, all of these sort of questions can start to be answered now if you have stability and if you have autonomy and confidence from, from ownership on down to your management group. It doesn't appear like the Canucks are. They're sort of buying time here, right? Casting it as due diligence when it's anything but. And and meanwhile, you know, there are opportunities to miss, opportunities that could be missed in the weeks and months to come. You know, the whole thing is, frankly, the, the word that comes to mind for me, Jamie, and, and you let me know if it's too harsh, is unacceptable. Well, here's, it's, has it been, okay, <laughs> the play on the ice has been unacceptable. The play on the ice has been unacceptable. Has it? The last four games? No, not the last four games, yeah, but, but all overall, yeah, at this, sure. to this point of the season, it certainly has. And sorry, and sorry, overall, for the last eight years. Yes. Now, if they make a change tomorrow, we're having a different conversation, right? But I want to play a clip from uh, Elliot Friedman, who was on the Jeff Merrick show earlier today. And Merrick asked him specifically about Scott Mellenby as a potential candidate, uh, as, which we discussed yesterday on the show, Drance, and, and whether or not that might make sense for the Canucks. But... Freeman also had some really interesting things to say about just where the Canucks stand right now in general as they potentially make changes at some point. I think it ties into the conversation we're having right now, Drancer. So let's hear from Merrick and Freeman from earlier. Uh, Vancouver Canucks, as we head into the weekend, one of the names that has popped up, and you put it on the radar pretty quickly and reminded everybody he was part of the Mike Gillis group, um, Scott yep. Mellenby and Vancouver. Do we know anything, if there's any interest here? I, I think that the, the thing I've heard about Vancouver is, and, and I heard it again this week, they are they are basically going through every available name and seeing what they think about this or, you know, what kind of the picture is around them. I would believe that Mellonby is on their radar, yes. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if that means anything yet in terms of him being a favorite or anything like that. But I, I guarantee you that they know he's available and they're looking into it. I just don't know. Like, I don't get a sense that there's any one favorite at this particular point in time as we talk about it right now. I, I think they're, 
I think they're still going through it. And uh, like, like basically I heard is that they're just doing like big audits of everyone who's available to kind of figure out where they want to go. Is there a chance they do this all season that they go through the entire season like this? I don't like. I don't want to get radioed, so I'm going to be careful and just say that. I like. I. I. I I'm going to stick to my line because I think it's the truest thing I can say about Vancouver. They're not going to make any long-term changes until they're sure they found the people they want to hire. So that's Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick. And as I said, part of that is about Scott Mellenby, but part of that is about where things stand with the organization. And we've we've had this conversation before, Drancer. Doing your due diligence, auditing everyone, that's fine in a vacuum. But the idea of going through the rest of the season like this, and, you know, we mentioned it on the show yeah. yesterday. Frank Saravelli said in his latest trade board rankings that, you know, teams are calling about JT Miller, but they're not sure that Jim Benning has the autonomy to make a move like that. That matches some of the things we've heard from local sources as well. You have to, at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, you have to have the long-term person in charge with enough runway to be prepared for the trade deadline, to be prepared to answer those sorts of questions. And that doesn't mean that they have to trade JT Miller by the trade deadline. That's not what I'm asking. But you have to have the person in charge who can at least make that decision, who has the ability to weigh the options in front of them and make the correct decision for the future of the franchise. Now, as you said, look, there could be opportunities well before the trade deadline that they miss. I agree. That's another reason to get this process Today, done. we see Yes. One. But at the bare minimum you have you cannot go all the way into the offseason with this status quo of you don't have the ability to make moves because there's going to be chances for the rest of this season to make moves that will have a dramatic impact on the future of your hockey team and, and i just look i get it i get due diligence is important and all of that you want to have the right person but at a certain point expediency has to take precedence here and you have to get the guy in place so jamie i want to i'm going to do a soliloquy it you? Is, no. As my reaction, yeah. <laughs> as an aside, break the fourth wall, look at the camera. Uh, straight up, straight up uh, soliloquy coming up because I have a very complicated reaction to what Friedman said there. Yeah. And I want to explain it because this is not based on any inside knowledge, and I want to caption it in advance. But here's an experience that I've had as I've sort of moved up in this business. As I've gone from pure outsider evaluating, you know, what's likely based on no inside knowledge, but based on what an organization is signaling to me publicly or is signaling publicly to someone who's a little bit closer to it. And and the example that I bring up is the bubble in particular. Like, as the Canucks lost in the bubble, I remember I wrote a piece about, um, you know, what what's next for the Canucks basically after this miracle playoff run. Right? Yep. And I said in that piece that the Canucks – and how normal their offseason was going to be would be dictated in its entirety by how quickly Green gets extended. I said, you know, in any normal organization, that's a first priority, a no-brainer after what this club's accomplished in the playoffs. You know, the, the, that that should be done in weeks if this offseason's going to be normal. And then I went to Banff, and on my way back from Banff, uh, back up to Edmonton, I made a ton of calls, and I wrote a piece a couple days later with Rick Dollywall. Yep. Um in which we said green extension is going to take time. And, you know, that's not a big concern. It's just not a priority considering all the other things. that the, And that was based on what I was hearing from sources. Now, the offseason was anything but normal. And my interpretation of the importance 
this like the signaling importance of what green talks would mean for this club was actually right. I was more right before I did the work than I was after I talked to everybody. <laughs> right. So I want to I want to you I want to use that example because what Friedman's suggesting to me and in, in particular the idea that this organization is going to take their time and the possibility although Friedman was very careful to not throw any additional uh, logs on that potential brush fire, yeah. right? Um, any additional fuel anyway. Uh, you know, if this organization is that reluctant to make changes, my gut, without talking to anybody, my gut instinct is that it's about money, that it's about additional salaries, that it's about wanting to leg through this season before making the types of changes that will cost an awful lot of money. And that's my gut reaction to that discussion. My gut reaction is, and, and you know, this isn't the first time we've talked about this, right? Nope. We've talked about the idea that this ownership group tends to prefer to make off-season changes and would prefer to limp through this season before making the types of changes that the entire industry, including, including clearly Canucks ownership if they're doing the types of diligence that Friedman says they are, and he knows they are if he's saying it, right? Um, would still prefer to limp through the season before making those changes. I mean, how can that not pose some really significant questions about the role that internal budgets play in shaping that approach? That's that's my gut reaction to that Friedman audio. And that is understandably pretty tough to hear, right? Because as we just detailed, chances are passing you by right now. Opportunities might be passing you by at the trade deadline. You know, every... Every day that the new person isn't in charge is one less day that they have to take stock, to evaluate, to understand the organization, to understand the needs of the organization, to build the front office, all of those things. You know, it's better started as soon as possible. And that doesn't mean you just hire the first candidate at hand. There is obviously a balance that has to be struck between, as I said, you know, expedience and doing your due diligence. But if the plan is to take this all the way through the trade deadline and basically sit out the trade deadline because you don't have the right person in charge, that is damaging. a very, very bad you thing what, for the know, future of this franchise. You know what it is? Total failure. Total failure. It, yes. it, is, a, it is a loser move from a loser team. <laughs> a total failure. And we had this text comes in uh, unsigned that says, that's actually a good sign that they are finally doing no, their due diligence, due diligence for once. There's a difference between due diligence and dragging your feet. Correct. That's the big difference to me. Due diligence, of course, you have to make sure you have the right guy. But you can do that on an accelerated timeline, right? There's a way to do that or in an efficient manner. Or, or with interims in place. Empowered to do certain things, but not wholesale things. You know, maybe the interim's not uh, not empowered to trade a core piece. Maybe you're not looking at... But uh, you have to be empowered at least to be like, Kale Clegg makes sense considering where we're at. And if you're not like flexible enough to make a no-brainer call like that as an organization, then it's not due diligence. It's cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, we've just seen an organization, and we've made these comparisons between Montreal and Vancouver a lot this week, but we're seeing an organization undertake these moves on a much faster timeline than the Canucks currently are, right? They went out, they made the move for Jeff Gorton. 
He's there. He's in charge. He's undertaking the process of building his front office, building his hockey operations department. And it's it's hard to see, unless the Canucks were dead set on Jeff Gordon and they missed out on him, it's hard to see why Montreal can do it on an accelerated timeline, but it's not possible to do it here in Vancouver. And the other interesting thing, Drancer, is there's been, I think, the dominant position I've heard from fans and from listeners, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is hire a president – Okay, get that person in charge, then let them evaluate everything else. Who the GM should be, what the hockey operations department should look like. Let the GM then make the coaching decision, right? Get the but get the president, the absolute top of the hockey ops department in place first. Now, if there is a concern about money or there isn't maybe a a candidate, an obvious candidate who presents themselves for that president of hockey ops job, do you think there's a viable path to hiring a GM first and then going out after that and looking for a president on top of that? I mean, I, th- I think you could do it, but it would have to be the right candidate. Like, it would really have to be a specialized candidate with weight in the local market, like an ability to calm the waters, um, someone you trust to be, you know, you, you'd effectively be hiring someone to do an evaluation of the organization, like a hockey person, to do an evaluation of the organization and consult on the search for a president of hockey operations, right? Like that, w- I mean, it's possible, it's doable. A lot of times, though, when, when people are brought in to do those types of jobs, like I think about Pat LaFontaine in Buffalo, yep. it doesn't end well, yep. right? Or, or Tom Fitzgerald in New Jersey ends up getting the top job. So, you know, I do think you have to appreciate the stakes in making that type of hire, which is that, you know, the search might not go the way you want, or the GM who's consulting on it may not end up staying with the president, even if he consults on the search. So, you know, it's complicated, but is it possible? Sure. Is it best practice? Like, is it best process? No. But I do think, you know... I do think considering where this team is at and the immediate need to begin to chart a new course, I honestly do think it's preferable from sitting on your hands and doing nothing, particularly if that's sitting on your hands and, and, you know, um, making sure that enough names get out there that you look like you're doing something but are really just doing a sort of fake due diligence. I mean, is it preferable to that? Sure. But, But anything is. Anything is at this point. Anything is including just staying the course with your current group the the current group that built this flawed team so you know we're we're sort of in a uh damned if you do damned if you don't situation with this club in, in from my perspective anyway and and it's not about doing it quickly it's just about doing it fairly and clearly and running a process that makes sense running the type of process that friedman's sort of explaining where you're not going to make a change until you get your top guy i get it but make the change so that you can at least begin to at least you can begin to signal the market that that's afoot at least you can begin to empower someone to make the types of small bets that might help you shed salary for this season yeah. um, you know mine a few assets some smaller assets while you conduct the search and get someone in, in place ideally ideally like you can take another month you can take in fact you can take another two months you could replace. Uh, have a new general manager in place for the end of January, and they'd still have two months before the March 21st NHL trade deadline. Yep. So, like, you have, you do have some time if you want to use it. What seems odd is to leave people you've you're already seeking to replace in in charge 
for the interim with limited autonomy to begin to do the audits and the reviews that you clearly need as an organization. That's the part that doesn't square for me and, and for me is inconsistent, in fact, with any claims of patience or due diligence. Yeah, the, the trade deadline and specifically making sure that the new person has enough run-up to be at least adequately prepared for the trade deadline, that's the real tipping point for me. But as you say, I certainly, I've said this many times on the show on the airwaves here on Sportsnet 650, I would go the interim route because I just don't think the process, as we're seeing it play out right now, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I don't think it's working for the organization. Uh, we had a text in here that says from Nathan and Pitt Meadows, as a lifelong fan, the longer they wait to make any changes, the more insulting it is to the fans. And what we've seen in these you know, last three weeks or so is fans are just struggling to care about the games, to pay attention to the games because there's so much curiosity and so much an- so much anticipation for changes coming. I think you could, even if it was just to, to make the interim moves, you could change the conversation around this team if you went down this path. But as I said, I think the trade deadline and making sure you have the right person in charge for the deadline, that's the ultimate tipping point for me. And we will see if eventually the Canucks do have their long-term person in charge for the trade deadline. Lots more coming up here on Canucks Hour. We'll continue to look ahead to the homestand, the game against Pittsburgh tomorrow. Plus, we'll take plenty of your text. 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Keep them coming in. Your thoughts, comments, questions, always appreciated. More of the Canucks Hour. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, next on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans, Canucks insider, who also covers the team for The Athletic. We are live at Rogers Arena. Canucks practice remains underway. Of course, the team will be back in action tomorrow against Pittsburgh. I do want to look ahead to that game specifically a little bit later in the show because I actually think it's a pretty interesting matchup given what happened last time those two teams met, uh, which was not particularly positive for the Canucks. But I wanted to get into the text message inbox a little bit as well, Drancer. 650-650, you can reach us with your thoughts, comments, questions, anything on your mind about the Canucks. We were discussing more about the team's front office situation, when and if changes will happen, what they might look like. And we got a couple of texts uh, that came in back-to-back that I want to read. The first is unsigned and it says, I really think they need to get experience now. It's time for hiring people who have more say and stand up to the owner as well. And then a question from Tony for you, Drancer. He says, Drancer, do you think Chris McFarland and or Lawrence Gilman are viable candidates for the GM position? The reason I read those questions in tandem is, of course, McFarland and Gilman do not have experience as general managers, but nonetheless, still attractive candidates to, I know, a lot of Canucks fans out there. Absolutely. Uh, So, you know, I think experience is a little bit overrated in terms of general manager, like in terms of evaluating a general manager. I mean, you know, go look at the top teams in the NHL right now, and you've got the Toronto Maple Leafs with a GM who, in Kyle Dubas, who was never in the role before. Yep. You've got the Florida Panthers with Bill Zito with a general manager who was never in the role before and has pretty clearly revamped that organization to a, an outrageous extent over the last two years. You've got the Washington Capitals with Brian McClellan, who had never held the role before and is on a five-year run as one of the best executives in hockey. You've got Bill Guerin and the Minnesota Wild. Bill Guerin had never held the role before 
and that team's done some really sharp things to build, like, this Minnesota Wild team. Do you know they're first in goals scored in the NHL? Yeah. This is the first Outrageous. exciting Minnesota Wild team. Outrageous. And, and they're incredible. Like, honestly, I remember remember after we saw them play in Vancouver? Yeah. And, and we came on this show, and I said, they're going to win the Central? That's a, that's a good-looking prediction from your guy, but work, rookie GM, you've got Brad Treliving. In, in Calgary, who'd never held the role before. So, you know, I, for me, you don't need to go go get a smart guy. Like, yeah. there's a lot of GMs who've held the job and done really poorly, like, really badly, you know? Um, go get a smart person. Go get a smart person capable of being a business leader with a ton of hockey experience and, and who's able to evaluate talent. But but honestly, also, is it is able to delegate and hire the right people and communicate because you don't need – you don't need to have your top guy be the sharpest scout. You know, you, you need the top guy to... To hire the sharpest scouts and listen to them. And, and, and set up a process yeah. whereby, as a group, when things get stressful, you make the best decisions. Period. Right? So, you know, uh, Julian Brisebois, by the way, would be, would be another example yep. for me of a guy who'd never held the role before. So, you know, for me, experience in the general manager, like, that's not as important as getting the right guy. And that brings us to... Chris McFarland, an assistant general manager with the Colorado Avalanche, who I think is enormously intelligent. He'd be a phenomenal hire for any organization, the Vancouver Canucks included. And Lawrence Gilman, who's you know had 30 years of experience in the um, in the industry, uh, currently an assistant general manager with the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, again the top team in the NHL at the moment. And you know, I, I mean, look, both of those guys would be phenomenal hires for this club. Uh, Lawrence would bring a little bit of extra PR weight considering how familiar this market is with him and his thought process and what he meant to this market during a golden era for the franchise. Um, you know, and, and McFarland, I think, has just had an absolutely golden run and is extremely influential with the Colorado Avalanche who have built, you know, an, a model team and have weathered some really significant storms in constructing this lineup. So, you know, I, I don't think you can go wrong with that type of candidate at all. And, in fact, that would be the class of guy that I'd be prioritizing looking for, to be totally honest with you, as opposed to, honestly, even like a Jim Rutherford or a retread type, um, you know, an older guy to be your president of hockey ops. Like, just get the smartest, most dynamic, most qualified assistant general manager and make sure they're the type of guy with a McFarland or a Gilman-type administrative background as opposed to just going and getting, like, the best scout. Yeah. Because I honestly just think that scouting experience does not prepare you for running a billion-dollar organization. Um, you know, I think that when you look at some of the limitations of the Jim Benning era, you know, that's that's the that's the problem. You don't want a super scout as a GM. You want an administrator and a business leader. And, and McFarland and Gilman, for me, sort of match those qualifications. And, you know, the reason we get a lot of texts about it has to be an experienced person. And this text comes in right now. Benning was a rookie. And I've heard fans over and over again look back at the shakeup that occurred in 2014 when it was Lyndon, Benning, and Willie Desjardins all coming in at the same time, all with no previous experience in that role at the NHL level. And I understand then fans look at that and say, well, that didn't work out. We're still feeling the effects of those moves today. Obviously, Benning is still here with the organization. So let's change the process. Let's let's do a different process this time. 
and hire someone with experience. Uh, can I? Can I? I want to do an error and omission because I've got a couple texts sure. in about it, which is Clegg is listed at six foot one seventy six. Correct. Correct. I had his dimensions confused. Not the player, but his dimensions confused with Vegas defenseman Nick Haig. <laughs> Kale Clegg, Nick Haig. And I knew the player. I knew. I know the difference between the player, but for some reason I had the dimensions well, confused they between the two. Yeah, they rhyme. And so I just got to own that. Put my hand up. Sorry. Sorry. And thanks to all of you holding me accountable uh, on the facts. I hate to get them wrong, and I wanted to own it in public. There you go. Hey, our, our texters are very, very good at holding us accountable. And in all seriousness, I do appreciate it because if you make a mistake, you want to own up to it as quickly as possible. On the experience topic, just a little bit more, right? From a, I think you're absolutely right about the GM position. For the president, yeah, you probably want someone who at least has been a GM, right? Who, who has that a high-level executive experience in the NHL. Just what, because you hire, if, if the Canucks could hire Theo Epstein to be their president oh, of the okay. operations. Well, that's different. That's, right? but, he, Canucks... but he's done that job in another sport, so that's experience for me. Okay, that that counts to me as as an experienced right. hire. Right. right, I would absolutely be open to something like that. You know, if, if, if that would Ma- be phenomenal. If Masai Ujiri decided he wanted to take his talents to the NHL, that would be a great hire. Yes, that would be a fantastic hire. Okay. Um, go down the list. No, no, no. But they have that high level executive experience. Sure. Is what I mean. Bill Parcells. Yes, sure. Well, Bill Parcells. <laughs> let's let's slow down here. I don't know about that one. I don't know about that I'm one. I'm just throwing out random names. But that's that's a to me the president is, yeah, you don't want a rookie executive in that sense who hasn't been in charge of something at some level before. For me, anyways. Yeah. Now, now there might be candidates here or there who, okay, there's an exception to every rule. I understand that. But I agree for the general manager and somebody else texts in, you know, every single good GM and coach at one point had zero experience on the job. And even beyond just the names you ran down of, of you know, some of the top teams in the league this year, and their general managers were hired for that team with zero experience, I think that's a great point. Like, every good person in the league at some point was a rookie at their job. And at a certain point, I get it. But you've got to get the person at the right time. You know, like, like Steve Eiserman was ready when he took the Tampa Bay job. He built the Canadian Olympic team and won a gold medal in a, a super stressful environment. For the 2010 team. He'd been five years in an executive capacity with the Detroit Red Wings. And it wasn't just like um, a commemorative executive capacity. He had he was elbow deep working with Jim Nill and Ken Holland and that group. Um, you know, you got to get the right person at the right time. Like Chris, I didn't love the New York Rangers offseason. I don't think there's a secret of that. But Chris Drury was ready for that job. He'd run an yep. AHL team, uh, you know, on and on. He'd been... A director of player personnel. He'd been in player development. He'd, he'd spent six years honing his skills. Brendan Shanahan in Toronto. He'd never been a president of hockey operations, but he'd spent five years running player discipline for the NHL. He ran a department for a you know multi-billion-dollar um, league. Right? That matters to me. That is relevant experience. You got to have something like that. You've got to have been an administrator, a leader, a business leader. That, to me, is the experience that matters far more than having held the title of general manager in the past. Yeah, I think that's very fair to point out. And, look, we have a, a someone text in, give Scott Niedermeyer a call. See if he'd be interested in being president of Hockey Ops, proven winner and hockey mind. And, look, I have a ton of respect for Scott, Mieter, Scott Niedermeyer. If he wanted to be involved in the organization in some capacity, great. You do it every time. He's Scott Niedermeyer. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, I thought for some reason. No, no. Okay. Yeah, Scott Niedermeyer they're, they're mentioning here. But – What's Scott Niedermeyer done post-retirement? Exactly. So for president, that to me, that doesn't make sense. In some role, if he wants to get into hockey ops with your NHL team, yeah, sure. you say yes, you take that call, you take that meeting every day of the week. Again, I'm a huge fan 
of Scott Niedermeyer, but that's the point I'm making more about the experience there, right, Drancer? It can't just be former player X who played at a really high level and who has connections to BC or has connections to the Canucks that you put in the president's job. As you say, it has to be somebody with some relevant experience, whether that's as a general manager, as an administrator in a different context, whatever it is, I do think at that president's level, experience becomes more important. Um, One of the things you mentioned there, and this is something I wanted to get into as well, right? You said you don't necessarily need a super scout for your general manager. And that was when, when Jim Benning took the job, right? The two things that I think were most common to hear were one, the Boston model, right? Cause he was coming from the Bruins, the team of course that had defeated the Canucks in the Stanley cup final. And he, he was going to import the lessons from the Bruins into Vancouver. And that was going to make all the difference. And then two, it was his prowess as a scout and his commitment to scouting his history as a scout. And of course, drafting was always a major talking point, the relative success or failure of drafting, in the Mike Gillis era, in the Dave Nonis era, for that matter, as well. And that was something a lot of fans have talked about. And for years, and still to this day at the station, we get texts saying things to the effect of, uh, I don't want Benning as the general manager, but keep him around as the director of scouting, right? Because there's still this idea of his ability as a scout. But Tyler texts in, Benning is not a super scout. 50% in the first round, no other great picks other than Demko in later rounds is not good. And you know, you can pour through all the draft picks and later rounds and assign value to them how you want. But I do think there's this idea that, you know, people will say, well, you know, Benning is a really good drafter, but he can't, he, he doesn't do the other things well. I, I think there's actually plenty of holes to pick apart in the drafting record as well uh, over the last eight years. The here. biggest one, though, is that your drafting doesn't matter if you're not taking advantage of the talent you get, right? So okay. I want to bring up the Anaheim Ducks as an example for you, right? Under under Martin Madden, who I think, by the way, would be, if I was Jeff Molson and Jeff Gorton, he would be my pick for Habs GM. He's a French speaker, uh, incredible scout. But him, Marchment, um, McNabb, who retired out of Anaheim, like that group, if you go look at 20 years of draft history in the NHL, no team has done better at mining talent than the Anaheim Ducks from the NHL amateur draft. Not It's not even that close. Like Anaheim, by a lot. And it hasn't mattered because they've failed to marshal their assets the right way, right? So, like, it's cool to draft Shea Theodore, but, but you also have to not Protect sign Clayton Stoner the, yes. and Kevin Bieksa to an NMC that then cause you to lose him so that you can protect Josh Manson, right? It's not good enough to find William Carlson in the 50s. You also have to not trade him for James Wisniewski, yeah. who plays five games for your franchise and is injured for the playoff run that you that you acquired him to, to play for you anyway and was out of the league the next season. Like, it's not good enough to draft. You also have to mine value from your picks. So, you know, the texters that says there's been no other good picks except Demko in the later rounds. That's not that's, that's not, not true. true. No. That's not true. And and even if there haven't been guys who've hit to the full extent, like a Gadjevich, right? When Gadjevich made the World Juniors and Canucks fans were excited about them, if the Canucks had serious concerns about how his skating would translate, like, you trade him then for another piece. Uh, Adam Gaudet is another good example. Troy Stetcher wasn't drafted. He was an unsigned free agent. But there were times in Troy Stetcher's Canucks career early on where he would have mined at least a second, maybe more, in a trade. Um, you know, Goddard had 33 points. He was like a centerman, a third-line centerman. You know, they signed him to that one-year 
10.2c contract and he and he duds but if you traded him either at that deadline something by the way that the organization did consider yeah. ahead of the uh, during the 19 or 2019 20 season um you know if you trade him at that deadline or in that off season he would have had major value for your club like it's not enough to find good pieces it's also about timing and and weighing your assets and evaluating it at the right way so that you maximize the value of what you're sending out and what you're getting back and how you sort of figure things out. And and so, you know, the Gillis era was an absolute black hole for drafting. But the key thing to remember there is the draft pick value that the organization completely sent out, right, in order to pursue a Stanley Cup victory. Yeah. Right? Um, the last two seasons, this team's done the same thing. And there is nothing to show in all likelihood, from these draft classes. Like, Klimovich has made a solid first impression, but he's also was a healthy scratch the other day as a reset following a month in which he only played seven games for the Abbotsford Canucks and in which his ice time was in single figures, right? So it's like, you know, and and the year before, Yoni Yermo is, is unlikely to be invited to participate at all for Team Finland at the U-20s. Um, you know, they probably, like, we will probably look back at the last two drafts, Canucks drafts, and think that they match the absolute lowest sort of nadir of the Mike Gillis era in terms of draft quality. So, you know, I, I just think even if even if you accept that the Canucks have done okay at the draft table, and I think there were three years where the results were pretty good, 2017, 2018, 2019. Yeah. You know, those are good drafts for me. Um, but the overall fact of the matter is is that they haven't maximized their value and and you know Tyler Madden's a really good example right like Tyler Madden's a great pick whether he hits or not he's a great pick because he gave you a, a quality asset a Hobie Baker nominee that you could monetize at the deadline to improve your team for a playoff run the Canucks end up winning around in that playoffs and also winning a playing tournament playing round um, that's a good pick but if you then lose Tyler Toffoli it doesn't matter that you nailed the pick it does not matter right and that's that. That's the big sort of thing with with like scouting in general. It's important. It's important, but it can't be everything. Calder trophies at the end of the day are not winning consistently in the NHL. That is the bar that this Canucks team has failed at, even as they've occasionally done really well. By the way, the other really good pick that this organization has had under Benning's uh, leadership is is Besser. That's actually the best pick they've made. Yeah, because Pedersen, Hughes, kind of no brainers. Kind of no-brainers by the time you get to 5-7 and seven and, the, and they're still on the board. The Besser pick is actually the best one. Yeah, Besser's really good. I put Niels Hoaglander at 40, trending in that direction. Oh, Not yeah. surpassing Besser, but as another oh, really, really high-quality pick. Totally. To, to come in on that timeline as a second-round pick yeah. and produce the way he has, that's rare. So that it's not fair to say there's been nothing past the first round, as the initial texter said, you know, other than Demko. But there have been... As you said, the, there's a good chance that we don't that we don't see a lot at the NHL level from the last two drafts. You look at the 2016 draft. See nothing. There's nothing there. Yeah. Like, you know, and Yermo goes five picks ahead of Justin Sordiff, a local kid who's going to play first line minutes for Team Canada at the U20. Yoni Yermo's not even going to be invited to yeah. U20 invitation camp. It's like, isn't that the same thing we've been talking about for 20 years in this market? Are you going to tell me that are you going to tell me that Jim Benning s- solved this club's drafting woes when or or Klimovich over Logan Stankoven also invited to 
Canada's World Junior Camp, uh, lighting it up for Kamloops again this season. Uh, no, and both picks were no-brainers. This isn't even like post-talk analysis. This isn't Wikipedia scouting two years later. Like We knew this at the time. That's what's so frustrating about it. And the other thing you mentioned there, Drancer, about, okay, it's one thing to draft well and, you know, hit above the expected value for whatever pick you're drafting, right? And that doesn't mean you're drafting an all-star player in the fifth round. You know, a, a successful fifth-round draft pick, as you said, is one potentially that you can monetize down the road to help your team. And I look at a team like Tampa Bay, who's been really good about moving on from prospects at the right time, not getting married to their own prospects, prospects, and it comes back to the same. <laughs> They're the best at it. Yeah, and they and they ritualistically light their first round picks on fire. They never get value other than Vasilevsky from their first round picks ever, and it doesn't matter because they do so well in later rounds. And because when they screw up with an Anthony D'Angelo or a or a Brett Connolly or a, I mean, go down the list. Jonathan so Drew and to a certain Coco. extent, Slater yeah. Coco, Slater Cuckoo was eleventh overall pick. Like, you know, when they, yeah, Jonathan Drouin, for sure. Yeah. For sure, Jonathan Drouin's a perfect example. They they move on quick before those players lose value. That's the best example. Thank you. And it comes, to me, it comes back to something we've talked about in relation to Vancouver Canucks, which is the importance of doing that honest internal self-evaluation, right? And that's that comes into play when you're looking at the progression of your draft picks. And, okay, hey, it, it's easy to fall in love with the guys you drafted, right? The guys you scouted, the guys you found in the fifth round that other teams missed on. But you can't let that affection and that attachment prevent you from seeing the big picture and prevent you from seeing how they can help your team in other ways, how they might be more valuable as an asset in that moment than they're ever going to be on the ice for you in the NHL. It's about having that internal honesty that comes back to, you know, to me it's, it's similar to recognizing what your team is likely to be before you go make, making all-in trades, right? Before you go trading your first-round picks in consecutive years to try to make the push to the playoffs. At a certain level, the thing we're talking about is, you know, you just have to be able to honestly and with clear eyes and with clarity evaluate the talent and be honest with yourself. And, and I think that plays a huge role in what you're talking about, right? Making sure you're not just drafting well, but they're actually getting the most out of them down the road as well. Yeah, that you're marshalling all assets for the, like, you have to you have to use all weapons for the purpose of building a team and not building a team to do one thing or do another thing, right? But, like... If you're rebuilding, you need to use your cap space to add to your arsenal of assets. If you're going for it, you know what I mean? You need to use your draft picks in a different way, but you still need talent coming because you always need assets to buy, to make moves, to shed mistakes because mistakes happen too. And like you need to be disciplined and boring in the way you go about it. And this team just too often seems to be going for the guy you've heard of as opposed to just doing the simple things that ultimately result in sustainable winning in this league. Uh, look, no further than Carolina making 11 draft picks a year, and then, you know, they trade down, and they yeah. and now and now look at them. I mean, they're a contending team, but they also have, like, five right-handed defensemen prospects that are incredible. Like, Joey Keane doesn't even register. He would be Vancouver's top. Like, we would be so excited about Joey Keane. He's, like, their fifth-best right-handed prospect. Jack Drury, like we wouldn't stop talking about Jack Jack Drury in this market. In Carolina, he's like they're he's barely in their top ten. He's like a completely expendable asset that they're a hundred percent going to monetize at the deadline. I don't know that. That's not me reporting anything. Right, I'm just saying they, like it, it would fit their profile. It would fit their profile because they 
trade down. They have a they have a system, and they're the best drafting team in the last five years. Anaheim in the last twenty, but but Carolina the last five because of volume, because of raw volume. Like Vancouver hasn't just mangled their picks over the last two years. It's that they haven't had any. It's that they've lost draft pick volume. Uh, it's it's a strategic failure and a total one. And that you know there are good drafting teams and bad drafting teams, obviously. But if you do look at the history over the long term, the best way to assure you're getting value out of the draft is to amass more picks. Right? That That's the fundamental way. Because even really good drafting teams are going to miss on an awful lot of picks. That's the nature of the draft. Uh, one text that comes in here says, also, remember, Benning may have drafted Elias Pettersson, but it was Thomas Gurdjian who did the scouting Stop. and discovered him, not Stop. Benning. That's that's how Thomas it works. Gurdjian, Thomas Gurdjian was a WHL scout yeah. for that season. But also... No, 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 but that's... No, 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 hold on, hold on. But beyond that, if your if your general manager goes into the goes into <laughs> draft prep thinking I really like this prospect, but he listens to his scouting staff staff say no, 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 it has to be this guy, and then he ends up approving that pick, that's actually a signal in favor of your general manager. That's how it's supposed to work. So look, I, I get it. I, what you're saying it's not true. <laughs> it's not true on a factual level either. But also, yeah. even if it was, that's how the process is supposed to work. Totally. That, that's how and it I'm, goes. You I listen mean, to your your scouts, and then you make an informed decision. Well, and and I mean, there's uh, there's an awful lot of competing narratives around the Pedersen pick. Let's just let's just say that. Um, <laughs> and we all know them in this market, right? Also, nobody discovered Elias Pettersson. He was a consensus top 10 pick in that draft. So it, he wasn't like, hey, I found this great guy skating on a rink in Sweden. But there no. were heated arguments over, over and, and, you know, same thing with Niels Hoaglander, right? There were heated arguments over, and that's how it should work. That, that was, at the end of the day, regardless of who thought what, the organization had a draft process that in uh, 2000 and. 17, 17 resulted the, in them taking Elias Pettersson over Cody Glass, despite you know there being prominent voices in the organization that for sure thought that Cody Glass like deserved more consideration or should be higher on the list overall. And again, with Hoaglander, you know Hoaglander had some significant proponents, including the late Patrick Patrick Johnson, who of course has passed away from uh, cancer, but was uh, Hoaglander's skills coach, who were banging the table for him and on draft day. Voices like Janssen's resulted had had convinced the organization enough that the that they traded they they changed up their draft list to bump Hoaglander up ahead of a couple of defensemen who haven't registered in this league because they thought he was a special talent. Yeah, uh, that is regardless of who's directly responsible, that's process work. Yes, that's how you want it to work. And I understand the the desire to you know assign a hundred percent credit or blame to draft <laughs> picks, but that's not realistic. And it's a again, collective. If the collective Endeavor. is making the right decisions, that's ultimately a good thing. That's going to do it for us here on the Canucks Hour. Uh, enjoy the game on the weekend. We'll be back on Monday, 11 a.m. Don't forget, you can find us on demand in podcast form, Spotify, Google, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Like, subscribe, give us a rating and a five-star review, please. We will be back on Monday. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.